0: privilege to open up God's Word with you again this morning. Next week, Pastor Joey will be up here teaching us from God's Word. I just want to underline one of the announcements you just heard about the course Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. Um, I love the Perspectives course. Um, I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you can take Perspectives, I think it would be great if you took Perspectives. Um, That registration night... This Tuesday, the 12th, is really an information night uh, all about what the class will be like. You can sign up this Tuesday, uh, but you don't have to. In fact, you can actually take the first uh, session the following Tuesday on the 19th for free. So take a test drive, have an actual class, uh, see if you want to sign up for the whole course. It will be socially distanced, it will follow all the safety measures, so if you're able to attend in person, that would be awesome. However, if you are not uh, comfortable attending in person, uh, they are offering an online option this semester so that more folks can participate. Um, information is at Perspectives.org, you can click on classes and they'll have those there. There's actually two online classes uh, this semester, one is like a national one, they're gonna have people from all over the country uh, participate and that will be on Sunday evenings from 4 to 7 p.m. Central Time. Uh, the other one is out of Atlanta, I don't have the time on that but it should be on the website at Perspectives.org. Uh, two other quick announcements, one is uh, it's the beginning of a new month already again, and so we've got new Summit Kids materials. Uh, They're in the back on either side at the table, um, and that is a, a set of, um, a monthly set of materials that uh, the, what your kids would normally be getting at Summit Kids classes, you can take that home, uh, and it will uh, bless you all, I know. Online, we also have those available if you'd like to download them at mysc3.org and click Summit Kids. There is a password because uh, it is proprietary material we have purchased for you, and the password is Summit Kids, all one word. So those will be updated every week online. The packet in the back is for a month. Uh, And then lastly, I just want to remind everybody, in case uh, you need, whether you've got little kids that need to stand up and stretch or the sermon gets boring and you need to stand up and stretch, uh, the expedition area over here to my left, your right, is going to be available. It's got the live stream in there. There's some toys in there for kids. Y'all are more than welcome to use that anytime you need. All right, well this morning we are diving into chapter one of the Gospel of John. Last week we saw the purpose statement of the whole book in John chapter 20 verse 31. He says, he wrote the book, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And so today we're going to rewind and zoom in on chapter 1, and John has this amazing prologue. The first 18 verses of chapter 1 are this uh, prologue that introduce many of the main themes of the book. This morning, as you heard read, we're only going to look at the first five verses because there's just so much, uh, and there is a lot here today. So, let's pray together and ask God's help as we get started. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for the word made flesh in Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us your written word so that we could uh, know who you are and uh, understand you by your Holy Spirit and be in relationship with you through the gospel. God, we pray during this time that you would open our hearts to receive your word, help us to see what is truly there and to be changed by it. I pray that you would help me to say what is true and helpful uh, in a way that is uh, just everything that you want it to be for the good of your people. Lord, we love you and ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't remember if I've ever shared this in this setting before, but I have an extended family member who is very dear to me who was raised in a cult name of that particular cult is Christian Science, uh, which is a misnomer because it's not Christian and it's not science. Um, Very much neither of those. Um, Part of the false teaching of that church is that Jesus is not God. And so growing up I've had a lot of conversations uh, with this family member looking at scripture and discussing who is Jesus and what is salvation and, and what's all this about. In college, I had the opportunity to take a comparative religion course which at a Christian school was looking mainly at, um, at that time, different Christian cults which uh, is not a, a slanderous or ugly term, it just means what, what orthodox Christians believe if you deviate significantly enough from a teaching that is core to the gospel um, and hold on to it consistently, you, you're, you cannot be a Christian and believe these things, they're, they're false teachings that are very serious. Many of those cults taught that Jesus was not God, and it was very interesting to look at the history and the theology of these different cults. While I was in college, I had a friend of mine that went to the same Southern Baptist church I was raised in. He was a couple of years behind me, who, um, really smart guy, really studied, really uh, just brilliant. He was a guy, he would, he would do research and write research papers for fun. I've never met anybody else, never met anyone else to do that, um, but he did his research, and came to the conclusion that uh, he believed Jesus was not God. And so we had a lot of conversations, and we looked at Scripture together. And when it came time for me, because of all these things, when it came time for me to write my senior thesis as a theology student at the University of Mobile, I wrote my senior thesis on the biblical foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I already believed that the Bible taught and teaches clearly and consistently that there is one God and that one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I did my paper on this because I really wanted to dig deeper into studying the evidence and why does why has the historic Christian church always taught this? And and what are the implications of it? And what does it mean if we deny it? Things like that. I say all that not because me studying or having those experiences makes me an authority on anything. The Bible is the authority of God on what is true. Um But for my part, I just want to bear witness and testify that there are a few things in this world that I know with absolute confidence, that I'm convinced of thoroughly. Among them is that the Bible is the true and trustworthy written Word of God. There is one God. He has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. That means He died in our place as sinners. We were the ones who sinned. He did not sin, and yet He took the, the death that sinners deserve, especially bearing the wrath of God on the cross that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to. For everyone who turned from sin and trust in Him, we would get His blessing just like He took our curse. And then He rose again on the third day, never to die again, to a, a new kind of transformed uh, glorious life. He's done dealing with sin on the cross. Therefore, He has done dealing with any experience of the curse, though, so He does not need to uh, experience weakness or any kind of sickness or death. And I know and believe with certainty that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sin and eternal life. The doctrine of the Trinity, tri, meaning three, and unity, meaning one, that God is three persons and yet only one God, the doctrine of the Trinity was not made up by Christians and then read back into the Bible. People today like to believe that for different reasons. It is not true. The doctrine of the Trinity, even though the Word does not appear in the Bible, the, the Word is how we have come to summarize these different teachings that together mean that God is one God and three persons. Those doctrines are the clear teaching of the whole Bible. Right up front in the book of John, John wants us to hear and believe that the Jesus who died on the cross and rose again is fully God and fully man. Interestingly, Mark begins his gospel with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he jumps pretty quickly into the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Obviously, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that is a great and wonderful beginning to the message of Jesus. Here He is. Here He came. Here's what He's saying. Here's what He did. John wants to give us more of the backstory of Jesus, not by telling us about His birth in Bethlehem or His genealogy like Matthew and Luke do, but by backing all the way up to the beginning beginning, before the creation of the world. His wording is very Intentional. He says, in the beginning, which is to everyone, his original readers, it's just resounding. These are exactly the beginning words of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, in the beginning, before there was creation, before there was anything else there, God was already there. In the beginning, God. Before there was a world or anything, there was God. God had no beginning. He never started. He was always there. He is eternal. But John, instead of saying, in the beginning God, writes, in the beginning was the Word. At the beginning of everything else, the Word was already there. So, the Word has no beginning. He was always there. He's eternal. So, what does that mean? How can anything other than God be eternal like God, having no beginning? Well, John understands the confusion, so he clears it right up for us in the next few statements. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All cleared up, right? John is introducing some truths here that he's going to develop throughout the book, that Jesus the man is also God, who has a totally unique relationship with God the Father. We'll see uh, over and over again throughout the book the Father loves the Son, and and, uh, He was with the Father before the foundation of the world. God is not like us, and He is absolutely not required to be like us. Even the word holy, God is holy. That means, uh, before it even means that God is uh, perfect and pure and free from sin, which is true, that is the way the Bible uses the word. The, The word itself just means God is separate. God is distinct. God is other. He is unique. There is no one like God. There is, God says, to whom would you, com- would you compare me that I should be like him, declares the Lord. Like, God, God is holy. He, there's, he's got His own category. We don't understand how anyone can be one being and yet three distinct persons, but God is gloriously beyond our understanding. And yet, we don't have to understand God exhaustively to know Him truly. Truly you can know a lot of true things about God without being able to understand how they all fit together. God loves to reveal Himself to us. He loves to make Himself known, which is one reason why Jesus in the Bible is called the Word. Let's think about that. In the beginning was the Word, and there's a lot going on there. And people look at, you know, in the Greek philosophy context, there was the logos, which was like the overarching principle of the universe, and John is using that. Well, maybe... Um, John refers to the Old Testament a lot and shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, and so a lot of uh, theologians say that, that John is primarily thinking of the, the Scriptures, the Torah, all that was written before is fulfilled in Jesus. He is what it was all about, and, and John unpacks that throughout the book. Uh, I, think, I think both of those are, are true, probably more primarily the, the second one, uh, but think about your, your Word as well. Your Word reveals who you are. It's the nature of communication, it's the nature of expression. How does anyone know with any clarity what you think and understand about yourself? They listen to your words. Jesus, John is saying in in simple yet poetic and profound language, Jesus is the self-expression of God. And this is a theme throughout the book, if you want to know God the Father, look at Jesus. He is the eternal Word of God, God made known. Now. You make yourself known through your words. We as sinful creatures, we we could lie about ourselves. Well, you're still revealing something about who you are. You're revealing that you're a liar. Like, that's who we are. God is true. Jesus is the true Word of God who makes God truly known to us fully. John says Jesus has forever been with God. And in another true sense, Jesus has forever been God. It is a glorious thing that God is one God in three persons. This is unique to Christianity, and it's part of the best news in the world. The the gospel message is that God loves you and made a way through Jesus for you to be forgiven and welcomed into a loving relationship with Him. Through the cross, through the work of Jesus, forgiven of sin, and welcomed into a loving relationship with Him. But for many of us, that feels like it would somehow be unnatural for God? And part of the, the challenge of, of belief is, do I really believe that God is loving, that He really wants to have a relationship like that? God, God is this other kind of being. He was there in eternity past. He, he made this world. We are separate and distinct from Him. Why uh, am I so sure that He is the kind of being that really values and loves relationship like that? And if God was a single-person God, like some other religions teach, then before He created anyone else, He never had a relationship with anyone. Islam, monotheism, single-person God. Before there was a world, God God was alone as one person. And so, love in those religions is something that is, in one sense, unnatural to who God is. Now, it's possible, if, if, if that were the way reality was maybe a single person God could truly love others. I'm not saying that that's theoretically not possible, but it would be an additional thing that He started doing. It wouldn't be a necessary part of who He is in His essence. It would be somewhat foreign to the nature of His being. But the Bible teaches that God has always existed in loving relationship. There has never been a time when God was not in a gloriously loving relationship. John will tell us that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and they were together in this perfect relationship before the world ever began. Now, that's good news because God invites you into the loving relationship that the Father, Son, and Spirit have always had between one another for for eternity past. Like, this is mind-boggling, that you could be welcomed into this. Jesus says in in the Gospel that, uh, as the Father has loved me, so also I love you. And in His prayer, He says that I've shown them that um, you love them even as you have loved me. Like, the way the Father has loved the Son, He loves us. That is incredible. And this is what is offered us in the Gospel of Jesus. Now, some cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses will teach their people that this is a mistranslation in John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, if you talk with the Jehovah's Witness and say that John 1.1 1, 1 says, and the Word was God, uh, almost certainly they will tell you, well, that's not what it says in the Greek. Uh, I, I love this. Uh, uh, years ago I heard on the radio, I think it was Dr. David Jeremiah, I'm not sure who the preacher was, he said, when, I, when a Jehovah's Witness tells me uh, that's not what it says in the Greek, I always say, "Oh, that's very interesting because I thought it said Kai But if that's not what it says, then by all means, what does it say?" And you know, and he was sharing that. Of course, it's funny, like not not to, to dunk on somebody or or you know, but to make the point that a person saying that doesn't mean it in the Greek. They're taught to say that, and it, there's uh, the, the followers of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Generally, in my experience, are uh, have not been taught to be scholars of the Greek language and see the the intricacies of how that works. Um, The Greek really does say that the Word was God, and most of the people who will tell you otherwise haven't studied New Testament Greek grammar. They're just told that's not what the Greek says. Now, we're not here for a Greek grammar lesson, so I'm not going to parse all that out. Uh, But here is another way to respond to that objection if somebody gives it to you. But before I go there, you may be asking, okay, seriously, why? Why does it matter? What's the significance? If you get everything else right and you miss the deity of Jesus, does it really matter? Uh, Well, for one thing, I don't know if you can get everything else right if you (laughs) get the deity of Jesus wrong. But let's say, so for one thing, if Jesus isn't God and the Scriptures say that He is, then the Scriptures are not trustworthy. How can you believe anything else that the Bible says about God or salvation? if you can't trust it when it says repeatedly in different ways that Jesus is God. But also I think there's a reason why, and, and this is in, in all these different conversations and people in different cults and different sects and things that, um, that say that Jesus is not God, it, it's very interesting when you study out their, their view of, of what salvation is and how it works. I think there's a reason why people want to believe that Jesus is not God. Confusion about how it could be true is one thing, and I, that's understandable. But ongoing rejection of that truth, as we said, is heresy. When you look at the Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults uh, and what they teach about God and sin and salvation, in various ways, they, they all basically say that we're not really as bad off in our sin as we really are. They all teach that we do something, we contribute some good works to our salvation. We, we need uh, some forgiveness, sort of, to get us back to neutral. Uh, we, we need forgiveness for where we messed up, but we are not so messed up that we can't at least partly save ourselves. So, Jesus gets us back to neutral, kind of wipes out the negative, but then the rest of it is what we, in our strength, in ourselves, are inherently able to do, and God saves us on that combined basis, Jesus plus me. And so, I'm part saved by Jesus, and I'm part saved by me. And that's, that's really what many of these cults explicitly teach, so, in that teaching, it makes sense for Jesus to be just a man because if He was just a man like me and He lived perfectly, then theoretically I could have too. We're in the same category. Sure, I messed up, but I mean, did you see my parents, you know, or whatever? We, we find these excuses, but in my core, according to that teaching, I'm basically the same as Jesus and I can, leave, I can live perfectly enough for God. I've got it in me. That's sort of what the theology they're presenting teaches. That is not true, and it's not biblical. We, according to the Bible, are more sinful and unworthy than we want to believe about ourselves, but God is more loving and gracious than we ever would have expected. So, when someone says John 1, 1 doesn't say that in the Greek, uh, it should say, you know, they they might say, uh, well, it doesn't mean that in the Greek. It should say Jesus was a God. He's not the God. I would encourage you, probably don't try to argue uh, the Greek of verse 1 with them, but instead maybe take them to verse 3. And let's look at that together. Even in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, it it says this, slightly different wording, but, but same content. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So, all things were made through the Word. God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. God creates by His Word. God's Word created what He commanded. And John is saying, again mysteriously in ways that we can't fully explain, that God's Word which created the world was Jesus. God spoke and Jesus the Word created the light. The eternal Son of God was the creating agent by which God made all things. They actually, other places in the Bible teach that it was by means of Jesus. Colossians 1, all things were made by means of Him. Now, so the person might say, well, that just means that God created Jesus first somehow and then created all other things through Jesus. That's a real teaching from a real cult. Um, That is not what the text says, and this is important. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John says, nothing was made that has been made without Jesus making it. Jesus is not made. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the Creator. We know from verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know from the rest of the book, the Word is talking about Jesus. He is the eternal Creator. Creator, the eternal Son of God. So, if we believe verse 3, that all things were made through Him, then we have to believe verse 1, that Jesus is God. Why? Because we, again, the importance of it for us, we want to keep seeing the glory of Jesus and keep believing in Him for who He really is. Weak and small and false views of Jesus are not going to carry us in this life. We want true life. We want the real Jesus. We want to know who He really is and believe Him for who He is and love Him for who He really is. We want the life that only Jesus can give. Truth matters even when it humbles us, even when it makes us feel smaller and unworthy and totally helpless and we needed the Savior to come in and fully rescue us. That is good because it's true and Jesus gets all that glory and we get loved that much We didn't get loved halfway, just back to neutral, and then we, like, God just loves us enough to do it all for us through Jesus. That's better news than any of the heresies. It is better to be humbled before Jesus and see Him rightly than to believe a lie that makes us feel better about ourselves. John goes on in verse 4, In the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's going to show us over and over that life is in Jesus, and He changes everything. Only He has the words of eternal life. So we want to accept the real Jesus and His real words. It won't always be easy, and it certainly isn't natural to accept the words of Jesus. We need God to do a miracle in our hearts, which again just humbles us further. Right? This word, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not Overcome it. A bunch of translations uh, into English say, "In uh, the, the light, uh, the darkness has not uh, comprehended it," uh, or something to that effect. Both of those teachings are true and consistent with the full b- Book of John. Um, the only other place where that Greek word for comprehend or um, overcome is used uh, is in a passage. I should have written it down. It, it is a passage that is clearly talking about overcoming. The word literally means to grasp or take hold of. Like, so the light came in, and the darkness couldn't do anything, like could not grasp it, couldn't stop it, couldn't take over it. Um, You could say, well, it it couldn't grasp it intellectually, and so they get the, it couldn't comprehend it. Well, maybe that, you know, that's true. Uh, I think it is saying uh, that the darkness has not overcome it. Either way, they're they're both true, and they're both in the book of John. So, uh, we'll just take both of them. John is going to show us over and over again that life in Jesus changes everything. We were dead, and we need His life. We were in darkness, and we need His light to shine on us. And when the light of God shines on us, there is a natural tendency, we see in the Gospel of John, to resist, to, to shrink back. I don't like this. It makes me vulnerable. It makes me exposed. It, it takes, a, like I said, a miracle for us to be willing to receive the light of Jesus All through John, we see people resisting the light of Jesus, but no matter how hard they fight the light, the darkness has not overcome it. When crowds walked away from Jesus, the darkness did not overcome the light. When they called him crazy and demon-possessed by religious leaders among the, the Old Testament people of God, the darkness didn't overcome the light. When Jesus refused to rally an army to himself to overthrow the Romans like everybody wanted him to and was expecting, the darkness didn't overcome the light. And when they nailed him to a tree until he died, the darkness did not overcome the light. In fact, the light of Jesus was shining more brightly than ever in the cross as he chose to pay the price on behalf of undeserving sinners. And then the light of God shone even further in the resurrection that Jesus has conquered sin and death and gives eternal life to all who trust in him. The darkness has not overcome the light of Jesus. Jesus accomplishes his purposes in the world, with or without us. The darkness cannot stop it. Everything in our lives as the people of God, everything as Christians, is different because of Jesus. The kingdom of God is truly upside down to this world's thinking. The, the light of God comes in and it's hard to accept because we wanted it a different way. We expected it to be this way. We value these things and the light of God just comes and wrecks our categories and challenges our value structures. Jesus says, you want to be great? You have to be the servant of all. You want power? Embrace weakness. You want the life of God? You have to die to yourself and to the ways of this world. You want eternal glory and honor. You have to embrace the temporary shame and dishonor of Jesus in this life. This is the message of the Bible. The Bible says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you at the right time. It's not what we want. We want to be exalted now. But the light of the world shines, revealing the truth of God and who He is and who we are, and the darkness of the world has not overcome it. So, briefly, about what happened in D.C. on Wednesday. What does the Bible teach? Jesus Christ, as God, is king over all kingdoms and especially over all of us, his people. Jesus' ultimate authority over us determines the way that we relate to earthly governing authorities over us, even those according to the Bible, that we believe, for one reason or another, are illegitimate. The Bible told Jewish Christians repeatedly to submit respectfully to Rome, which was an outside occupying force that occasionally would kill a bunch of Jews and kill a bunch of Christians. This is mind-boggling. This is super hard. I don't understand this. The disciples kept expecting Jesus the King to forcibly remove the Romans, but He didn't. He forcibly removed the devil, which is far better. And then He called us to live as citizens of His kingdom first and other kingdoms second. Not, not like this isn't real and valuable and meaningful and beautiful and important. It is important, but it's all governed by and under and consistent with the values and the laws of God's kingdom, which is love for our actual enemies. Now, this has been a, a challenging week to prepare a message because… Um, what do, I, do I address this or not? You know, they, they say when, when a, a person is, is preparing to preach, you should preach with your Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other hand. And not that you're always trying to address the news and certainly not trying to change this to fit the culture, but it's a metaphor for be aware of your context and speak into your context and see how the Bible applies. If I just preach generic, you know, so that's what we try to do. The Bible is for real life in Athens, Alabama today, it's for all of America today. We have the biblical right to peacefully protest as an appeal to the government when we believe that an injustice has occurred that warrants it. I'm not even getting into any of the underlying issues of what people believe about what happened and how it was handled. I'm just saying, if you believe something happened that warrants uh, an appeal to the government through protest, absolutely, do it peacefully. Speak truth to power. John the Baptist did. Jesus did. But we do not have the biblical right to riot. Now, please do not hear me accusing anybody here or implying anybody here, anything. I'm not accusing anything about anybody. I am not lumping together anyone who sees a reason to protest together with those who forcibly entered the Capitol on Wednesday. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not, you know, we're not, it's not us versus you, nothing. It is the responsibility, I believe, of Bible preaching to carefully apply God's eternal word to the modern context. And it's been a weird week. The name of Athens, Alabama, made national and international news in connection with the events that happened on Wednesday in D.C. Uh, and so I just feel like people are talking about it. This is big. This is this is addresses like, and some people are, you know, identifying as Christians and doing some of these things. And I'm not saying that every all the Christians were doing nothing. I'm just the world sees it, and Jesus is involved. What we say about Jesus is is so we have to. Think about it. And more than think about it, we have to hear what does the Word of God say. The kingship of Jesus transcends and directs our political lives and every part of our lives. The kingdom of Jesus transcends, it's higher than our political lives, and it informs and shapes and directs our political lives and all of our lives. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, I believe that there can be gospel-centered, gospel-driven protest. But I think it's safe to say there is no gospel-centered storming of the Capitol. I'm just putting it out there on the record for anybody who's hearing and curious about what do Christians believe about this. I'm not saying anybody here wanted to do that, would do that, anything like that. But there were some other demonstrations around the country, and there's been chatter online about repeated events. And so, if you're listening, the Bible says don't do that. Last year, there were other kinds of protests, some of which sparked riots. I said then what I'm saying now. Not all the protesters are rioters. We're not lumping them all together. We have the right to protest. The issues that we believe need protesting, we do not have the right to riot. Lastly, we saw last year in First Peter 2. This is a chunk of Scripture. I'm just going to read it. Uh, there's, there's a lot here. I'm not going to try to put it all on the screen for a while. But remember these words. Written to... A church that was lied about and persecuted. They said, you know, in our context, Caesar is Lord is is the uh, pledge of allegiance, you know. But you say Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So these, the, so the lie against Christians was these guys are insurrectionists. These guys, you got to watch them. They're they're going to have an uprising. They they deny the rightful lordship of Caesar over the empire. They must be a political threat. And Peter writing into that context, directing Christians, but also sort of giving this public defense uh, against that lie to those who would believe it. Uh, Peter has this open letter to Christians. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners. What's a sojourner? You're passing through this land. This is not your final home. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so what's honorable? What's, what passions of the flesh that we're supposed to abstain from are you thinking of? First on the list, verse, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, Caesar, like he's lying about us, persecution is coming, he's letting this happen, he is not on our side, don't we have a right to life? Yes, and yet there's more at stake here than just your life, the, the reputation of Jesus is on display here. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Why? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor, of all people, the emperor. Your Christianity is expressed in honoring unrighteous governing authorities. And the corruption of, of sin is, is deep. It's not limited to one side of the aisle. Like there's, you know, sp- let's speak truth to power and let's find a way to do it in a way that honors the authority. Well, what if they're, what if they're abusing us? What if they're illegitimate? What if we think they shouldn't be the guy there or, or whatever? He goes on. Different, different sphere of authority and subjection in the world, servants, uh, which is not like slavery, but that's a whole other thing. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gra- gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, you are called to endure suffering while doing good for Jesus' sake, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. We care about truth. We're not, we don't, the, the, the issue is not ultimately my side, your side, my agenda, your agenda. The issue is what is true. There was no deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Paul is saying, look, guys, this, this way of living honorably among the Gentiles, orderly and submissive, even in unjust situations is essential as a Christian. So, just laying that long text out there, the Bible is clear. We, and this is good news, y'all, we have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And compared to all the kingdoms of the world, they, they just pale in comparison. The ultimate supremacy of God makes the lesser supremacy of ruling authorities negligible. Like, this is not the main deal. Following Jesus is the main deal. Honoring Jesus, walking with Jesus. Here we have no lasting city, but we await the one that is to come. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, we are citizens of America. Let's be responsible citizens who honor Jesus. God will use us as He handles evil of this world. Sometimes in our time and in our ways, a protest, maybe he'll. Maybe something will change uh, and maybe it'll be in His time at the end of things. Jesus is the light and He shines through us to the world as we humbly, meekly, respectfully, and lovingly follow Him. So, I don't want that to be the only point of application today. Uh, it's just one that was very front burner on the minds of Americans, but we can rewind and remember Jesus is God, the eternal God who made all things, has been in relationship with the Father, invites us into relationship with God, and His light of life shines into the darkness, and the powers of hell cannot stop it. No governing authority, no oppression, no suffering, no virus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Hallow your name. Make your name holy and honored and reverenced in this world, we pray. Your kingdom come. May your will be done on this earth as thoroughly and perfectly as it is done in heaven. We don't see it done on earth as, as rightly as it's done in heaven. Lord, would you come and make this world a perfect expression of your kingdom. Let your kingdom come more fully. Lord, give us this day our daily needs. Give us our daily bread. Provide our needs, we pray. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Make us a forgiving people, Lord, as as much as we want to be forgiven by you. And Lord, lead us not into temptation because we don't want to sin against you, but God, deliver us from the evil of sinning against you. Your kingdom is forever. We love you, we celebrate you. Thank you for Jesus, thank you for the cross. Help our country, we pray. Give us wisdom, give us Christ-likeness, Help us to navigate, there, there's just, I fully recognize, God, that I've just barely scratched the surface of a complex overlay of, of complex complexities. Lord, there's just so much else going on underneath and, and around the issue, one angle that I looked at. But God, would you give us your Holy Spirit in fullness. Help us to navigate discussions in love and kindness and, and let the world see Jesus in us. And God, we pray that you would, save more and more people into your kingdom. Make us more like Jesus and help us to go on mission with you to the ends of the earth. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I just wanna say real quick one last thing. Jesus called two disciples into to, to be apostles of his that were on opposite ends of the political spectrum. Matthew the tax collector, uber pro-Rome and Simon the zealot, uber anti-Rome, like as far as you could get. and. He loved them both. He received them both. And as they encountered the kingdom of God, both of their politics uh, were adjusted in light of Jesus. So um, if there's other things that we need to discuss or disagree or have conversations, like we can do that and we can love each other and it's okay. Like there's, Jesus can handle that. So let's look to him uh, and walk forward together in, in love. Um, we take the Lord's Supper every week. It's a celebration and a remembrance of Christ's death on our behalf. take the cup, which represents his blood, and the the bread, which represents his body. And as we take it, we're we're saying, I still need you. You still feed my soul. You're still the food of my life. Thank you. Um, We do ask if you don't know Jesus to please refrain from taking this. The Bible reserves it for those who have already come to know Jesus through faith. So when you're ready, let's, let's take the bread, which represents Jesus' body. Bible says also that Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this is the co- new covenant in my blood. Take and drink uh, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. And then when you're ready, let's stand and continue to worship him through song.